We are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. Um, yes, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. The final book of the Harry Potter series, but the second last film of the Harry Potter series. Um, I'm joined tonight by Anija, uh, Gerald, and Maggie. Say hello. 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 Um, yeah, and um, which Harry Potter is this one? This one is... A bit of a weird one in my books. Um, it's kind of one where, like, the, the overall direction of the plot is kind of unclear at the beginning of the film, and it's just constantly unclear. I guess the kids basically are not at school this year. They've all dropped out of school. Um, and, I mean, look, the situation in the Wizarding World at the beginning of this film is... Um, pretty dire. We, we basically start the film off with this attempt to... Um, Harry is sitting at home and the usual Roald Dahl antics are not available because the Dursleys are leaving. Um, we start the film with um, Hermione having to basically blank the memory of her parents because Voldemort is posing such a dire threat to the normal world. Like, not just the wizarding world, the normal world. Um, so yeah, like, things start in a pretty ominous place in this film, and things pretty much remain ominous throughout this film. Um, I mean, this film basically follows um, Harry, you know, escaping from his home, going to meet up with the Weasleys and the rest of the Order of the Phoenix, Um and then from there, there's there's an attack on the, the location where they're all at, and he kind of just needs to split. <laughs> he he, as the chosen one, some somewhere along the lines, he's realised that he is the chosen one. He's the one that has to go and figure out how to def- defeat Voldemort, and so he doesn't go to school this year. There's no Hogwarts this year, and he just splits with his two best friends, Hermione and Ron, and without any sort of direction, well, relatively little direction, they have to somehow figure out how to um, destroy these Horcruxes um, that Voldemort has. So, you know, the world is a much more dangerous place. We're not in school anymore, and there's kind of not a huge amount of... Like, definitely for the characters, there's not a huge amount of direction in terms of where they need to go. All of it is kind of on their own recognizance, which I guess in some ways is a metaphor for what happens um, when you leave school and you kind of start your own life, (laughs) I guess in some ways. Um, But yeah, look, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. This this film basically, you know, it follows the journey of Harry trying to destroy the one Horcrux they have in well, they managed to get in their possession, which is the locket. Um, yeah, and <laughs> most of the film is basically around them trying to destroy that one locket. And this film ends on a bit of a cliffhanger because um, at the end of the film, Harry and his friends get captured. They get taken to the Malfoy's house. And in escaping the Malfoy's house, um, 
Dobby teleports in and helps Harry, but in the escape attempt, he is killed by Bellatrix Lestrange. Full spoilers, sorry if anyone was not aware that Dobby dies here. This is the big um, climax of this film. Dobby gives his life to save Harry Potter um, to break him out of the Malfoy's house. So... On that note, I, I don't think I've given a great summary of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, but um, on that note, I'm going to turn it turn it over to uh, my other podcasters to um, get their view on what they thought of this film. Um, who wants to go first? Mags, why don't you shoot yep. this, this week? Yeah, sure, I'll go first. Um, I thought it was a good summary, Darren. Um, so for me, um, what really stood out um, which I think you've mentioned already is the film really dives headfirst into that sort of sobering reality of Harry and his friends um, now on this mission to fight Voldemort and the Death Eaters and find the Horcruxes. And I think it it really sets up that sense of despair and horror and that kind of apocalyptic feel of the story now that started in the fourth and fifth books and really culminates here in this um, in this movie. Um, and I think they do that in lots of different ways. It takes place in winter. Um, it's filmed with the same kind of dark, bleak colour tones and scenery. A lot of the movie takes place at night or indoors or in shadowy places. And I love the wide shots that they use in that journey where Harry and Hermione and Ron are um, apparating from one place to another, hiding from the Death Eaters and trying to work out how to destroy the locket, which is one of the... Um, the first Horcrux that they are responsible for destroying and, and finding out how to find the other Horcruxes. So there's lots of moors and desolate scenes by the water and the lake and the cold. My favourite out of all of them is there was one scene where the three of them were hiding in an abandoned barn and you could see the Death Eaters streaking overhead, um, forming these black clouds and you could hear also a voiceover of the radio reciting the names of, of the fallen um, wizards and, and witches um, and I think that really set up that sense of, of apocalyptic doom that's now um, part of the story and then there was another scene as well of an abandoned caravan park with all of these burnt out vans or mobile homes which I thought was really atmospheric as well so a very very different turn of events um, I, I think the only levity really came that sort of Roald Dahl sense that you, you spoke about Darren mm. um, they only did it in a few snippets with the use of the polyjuice potion. Um, and other than that, I think it's really then a, just like a race against time. Yeah, this, you're talking about the attack on the, well, the attack in inverted commas on the ministry, right? This is And when... also at the beginning when they all were, all the different Order of the Phoenix people were um, pretending to be Harry. Yes, of course, of course. Although even there, it's quite bleak because within the first five minutes, Mad-Eye Moody just is capped yeah. off screen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone who is, you know, meant to be a really strong figure and an aura and then he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other thing I thought was really interesting is um, the movie starts with this kind of um, implied understanding by the order that Harry and his friends have to leave school and, and prioritise um, this fight um, and and the hero's story of Harry being the chosen one is kind of meditated on a bit. He's chosen by Dumbledore to find the Horcruxes and by fate, we found out at the last movie, through the prophecy of having to face Voldemort. 
and you kind of see the struggle of that as you know as young teenagers and how to actually do it and I thought it was actually quite funny that um, there was echoes of Lord of the Rings with carrying the locket and them being worn down by the weight of the locket and all of its evil intent which is very Lord of the Rings mm, mm, that's uh, true yeah Mag sorry yeah oh I didn't quite find that um part of the story where um, the three of them, this is kind of um, love triangle effectively that's starting to develop there in, in the camp, and I know we've been talking about it for ages, um, culminates in Ron um, leaving abruptly, and I didn't really find that particularly believable all of a sudden, and it also made him seem such a weak character um, and made you like it made me wonder why Hermione was in love with him at that point and kept being in love with him after that so I thought that was interesting they tried to use that as a kind of um break in the story so I I thought that that was a bit unnecessary yeah Um, I I I noticed that as well actually I I I don't think I noticed that as much on my first watch but on this watch it definitely felt like Ron was like the way he kind of walked out I I know it's kind of meant to be implied that the locket is having a huge toll on him but kind of the way he walked out was a little bit like you've kind of you know because he's the one who has the chat with Harry about how we're doing this together and all of this and I, I think that chat that he has with Harry at the beginning well earlier in the film you know like there's a bit Mm. immediately after the wedding when harry's about to walk off by himself and ron's the one who says convinces him stick around we're all in this together right and then for him to be the one to walk out on them it, it feels odd because he was the one who had that conversation with harry earlier on as well it it, yeah it feels a little bit hypocritical and it does make him feel weak right and even when he kind of like comes back cap in hand like there's something i don't know (laughs) there is i'm not sure about that story decision to be honest but yeah yeah i agree with you and i mean that point that that run makes right at the beginning it's such an important point and it seems like they kind of wasted it by doing that Mm. you know like the point that ron makes is effectively also saying to harry um reminding him it's not it's not really all about him. He's important, but they're fighting for a bigger cause, and it's an important way of distinguishing the um, Voldemort from Harry. Voldemort, you know, seeks people to follow him and to bend him to his autocratic rule, whereas Harry and, and the Order are fighting for this kind of better world, and Ron's the one who conveys that message to him, and it kind of reinforces how important he is as a character and as Harry's best friend, and in that moment, he acts as his conscience, but then it's kind of thrown away in that scene. Anyway. Yeah, 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 I agree, I agree, yeah. And then they follow that up with probably the weirdest scene in Harry Potter, where the the locket illusion scene, where oh, yeah. the locket opens <laughs> up, and then they have the CG, like, Hermione and Harry making out it's like one of the oddest scene choices like i know it's meant to be like the seed of jealousy or whatever it is but for whatever reason that scene just always sticks out for me like a sore thumb like it just somehow it tonally like even though this film is really dark somehow that scene just doesn't really gel with the film but maybe it's just me no that's that's pretty creepy that scene it's pretty creepy 
Um, the final point I just wanted to make um, was more about, obviously, the the movie is called Deathly Hallows and the book is Deathly Hallows. So this is the point where we, we kind of discover Voldemort's plan to secure ultimate power hmm. via these three artefacts, which together are called the Deathly Hallows. But I also really um, enjoyed the story um, and the animation they used to tell the story when Hermione was narrating it and showing the kind of parable that sits underneath it. Um, and to me, it was actually a really um, beautiful device to illustrate the core moral lesson that J.K. Rowling is trying to impart to the audience about greed and power and vengeance and contrasting that with humility and a focus on family and an acceptance of fate. Mm. Um, and the way that they um, imply, or through the story it's implied, Harry's association with the third brother, who was the one who was given the cloak and visibility and the one who was who actually demonstrated humility and acceptance of fate, that there's that association between him and Harry. I thought that was quite... I really, really liked that animation, and I, and I quite like that parable. Mm, yeah, I agree. I, I think the way they, they did that animation... Like, that also is a scene that really sticks out to me, like, on reviewing. Um, yeah, the the way they did that, the way they transitioned into that animation, and that the way that animation was done was there's like a deft touch to it. it. Like it kind of gelled very well. It's kind of like antithetical to that weird locket scene, right? Where this was a scene where they used the CG and the animation really well, and the locket scene was this like weird, completely weird, to tonally, um, tonally bizarre element. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, agreed, agreed, agreed. Um, Anja, Jerry, what were your thoughts? Um, I completely agree, and I also really love the Deathly Hallows story. I think, you know, in a simple story, she was able to link, like, tell us what the Hallows are, like, impart their power, like, give us a real sense of their power, but then link, link the Hallows to the core themes of you know the series as well which you know in such a short small short way she was able to do which was fantastic and i just love dark fairy tale type stories anyway so it was great look i think with ron um i too wonder like why the decision was made for him to leave the group but i think and you know ron does say that he thought that the um locket affected him differently to everybody else not really sure why but I think with Ron, what he's going through is a little bit different to what the others were going through because Hermione's parents are pretty much safe in the muggle world. Um, they're at least not going to be attacked anytime soon. And she's also protected them by causing, you know, their minds to erase all trace of her. Whereas Ron's parents are kind of on the front line, right? They're going to directly fight this battle. And there's a very real chance that his family and loved ones are going to be dead and he doesn't even know because he has made the decision to remove himself from them to go help Harry. Um, you know, it's a choice he made, but now he's living the reality of it and we see how stressed and worried he is, you know, sitting with his ear to the um to the um to the radio waiting for, you know, their names to be called or not be called. And I think that sort of builds up over time. So it might be a combination of just that that is quite unique to him compared to the other two. Um, so a combination of that plus 
there's already a little bit of jealousy and insecurity when it comes to Hermione uh, being too good for him and Harry being the chosen one. And I guess the locket just um, magnified that. So it kind of made sense, but I just wasn't sure why that decision was made plot-wise. However, for me, like I do prefer stories about strong relationships where there are flaws and there are cracks as opposed to everyone doing the right thing by each other all the time. I just think they're more realistic and I think you learn something by making those mistakes. You know, it's a mistake for Ron to run off like that. It's a character flaw, but that's real and I think you learn from that sort of thing and the relationship can become stronger, which it does in this case, I think. Um, And also, you know, he kind of he does say that he regretted it immediately but by then it was too late so it's not like it took him you know the days to get over this he it was a quick decision he made in a burst of anger and you know affected by the locket and what he once he was over it, he couldn't find them so that kind of makes sense look can i just add something there Anna like i i think part of the weirdness for me with that Ron so look I I, I agree with you and I I think like in the film they do make those um, factors that affect Ron evident right Mm. I I think the weird thing is kind of you are not sure how much time has really passed right so how much time has is Ron actually away from him is it like for months or is it for like a week like because that time makes a difference right like and i think this is one of the weird things with this film because the passage of time is kind of unclear sometimes i know that they use the seasons a little bit but like one the thing that really struck me about ron leaving was that well okay so he left and it's under it's understandable that people like you know relationships are realistic sometimes people say or do things that they don't really mean um emotionally in the heat of the moment and i i get that but like because they have this whole like trip to Godric's Hollow in between, which is just like Harry and Hermione. Like it feels like quite a long period of time passes before Ron co- comes back. So that feels weird, right? That and I, I know he says, "Oh, I regretted it immediately," but the fact that conceptually, anyway, it feels like there's that long period of time. There feel it feels more like egregious than potentially it is right that's the feeling that i get when i watch it i I think to make him leaving significant time did have to pass if he left and he came back straight away it would have been a nothing you know what i mean so to to make we as the audience had to go oh my god where's ron is he coming back like you know do what i mean we had to miss him and want him back and look for him to come back and be disappointed that he wasn't back straight away because I expected him to be back straight away, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to get worried and, and afraid that he wasn't. <laughs> so um, maybe that's why, I, I don't know. But I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry I, I interrupted you. That's all right. No, no. Um, look, what you said about the school, we don't see the school. You know, I'm thinking, I think it would have been, I think – because Dumbledore is dead now, I don't think you could ever have gone back to classes at Hogwarts. You know, we do see Hogwarts again, but it's in a very different war-like setting, like a battle, war-like setting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an apocalypse kind of setting. Um, I don't think you could go back to um, – what game do they play? Not lacrosse. Lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> lacrosse. <laughs> 
Quidditch and potions and herbology without Dumbledore because it would have just been too weird. You know, um, Hogwarts and Dumbledore are kind of synonymous when it comes to that boarding school type fun, fun school feeling. So makes sense that the school wasn't a part of it at all um, in this movie, like a real break from that, um, which also kind of signifies he's gone. Um, the other thing, you know, you said that um, – what did you say about not not being sure what the point of this movie was for a while? And I think the, the reason for that is – this whole thing about the Horcruxes and the Hallows, I don't think this was planned out from the start. Maybe it was, but I get the sense that it wasn't because it does feel like it's been, it, it, it's just, it's not, it's disjointed. It's like it's been shoved there and the whole series has not been leading smoothly to it. Like things have not been seeded properly for us to feel like, oh, this is where it's going. And so when it all suddenly crashes down upon us, we are disoriented a little bit. We're not quite sure what's happening with the Horcruxes and the and the um, Hallows and what they mean. And the reason, another you know point for why I, like I don't think she intended this from the start is, um, you know, when Harry first gets given the visibility cloak yes. Hermione, i think turns to him and says those are so rare but i think now we see they're not rare there's one and it's like right like it must <laughs> it must be it must be completely unique if it's one of the hallows so she must have not known that at the time she wrote those lines um and i think that but it's, it's- isn't it also weird that they go to a wizarding school where there are kids who would have grown up in wizarding families and Harry is walking around with an invisibility cloak and no one is like, oh my yeah. God, that is like, like, you know, when Malfoy zaps Harry off the train and he's in the invisibility coat, Malfoy looks at it like it's nothing. He just puts the invisibility cloak it's back on that. Harry's body. I know, it makes no sense. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, look, I do think that's why, that's one of the weaknesses of, of the, this, or not weaknesses, but why the final two movies seem like in a different, they don't seem like they're part of the series, even though they've got the same characters and there's clearly the same over, overarching arc of um, bringing down Voldemort, you know. It just, they just seem like, like suddenly there are these, there's a mission and there's a clear objective and there hasn't been for the first four, five movies. So yeah, I think it would have been better if all of the stuff had been seeded, um, more throughout the movies. But having said all of that, look, I really enjoyed this movie. I feel like so much happened. Um, so many scenes. I, I love the Bathilda Bagshaw turns into the snake seen it's so menacing and scary like i still jump at that snake attack um you know when it suddenly comes out from the so, <laughs> from wait under- can you explain to me sorry, is she mag sorry were you saying something Max? Okay, okay no darren so so this is the thing there's clearly a level of magic in this world that hogwarts would not be able to teach this is grad school magic okay yeah. somehow this snake can turn into a person <laughs> Yeah, because I was unclear. I was like, is she wearing Matilda Bagshot's body? Because I was like, that is dark if the snake is wearing the body Maybe. like a puppet. It's unclear. <laughs> <laughs> but even if the snake could do that, that is also a next level magic. Yeah. That I- <laughs> 
It is incredibly um, dark that scene, yeah. and then like the snake pushes Harry through the through the wall. And the way it's filmed is that the house next door is just like a normal house. There's like a nursery there, right? It's so bizarre. I love it, but it's it's like it's like very striking. Similarly, like very dark, but a different kind of tone to it is yeah. the scenes in the ministry, um, because you know them using like the semblance of law and order to you know, try to commit genocide, basically, like, you know, kill off a whole, you know, half-blood or, mug- or muggle-born witches is just so real and so scary because of how easily that can be done. You know, it's easier to commit atrocities like that if you're pretending that you're doing the lawful and right thing as opposed to just, you know, staging a war or a complete takeover. So, you know, that was also terrifying and really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, and I, I might add also visually, I really love that the, you know, the ministry when you go in, like if you remember in Order of the Phoenix, you go in and the sort of fountain that is kind of in the central courtyard of the ministry is like this sort of, it has all these species and like this wizard kind of like um, sort of, gesturing towards the heavens right like it's there's like a feel of ascendance in that in that sort of um decoration that they use in that central courtyard and then visually in this movie Voldemort's ministry has replaced it with this sort of brutalist almost Soviet style of like uh, sculpture which is just this massive granite block and then at the bottom of the granite block is basically like relief of all these muggles holding up the granite block and it's meant to like kind of show the dominance of magic over muggle wards right so i thought that was like from a movie making perspective it was quite a nice piece of conceptual art design to have that there because it does actually show that like visually it really shows that shift in like um in in the sort of in the government like the the ruling like the ruling body essentially right like you know there are significant shifts that are happening in this society right now that are being driven top down so yeah anyway sorry sorry for interrupting Angela yeah no absolutely um I also think the fact that you have to enter through the toilet (laughs) and not to just what you know the author might think of some of these political you know government arms um so the, the last thing i just want to know i completely agree with what you both said about the um horcrux opening up to a scene of you know a cg scene of harry and hermione um having sex it's just it was too much people because a they had been modified to look a little bit older and like these are kids we grew up with. They were like they're basically four years old when we first, look, they were eight or whatever. Whatever they were like really young and we do not need to see them having sex. Okay? Unnecessary. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a really weird scene. Not not as uncomfortable I think as they were filming it, because uh I think both Radcliffe and Emma Watson have since said that uh that was probably the most uncomfortable thing they had to film throughout the entire course of their of their run in this film franchise because they're like we're really good friends we're like didn't they date we're siblings though no, they didn't date 
and like this was just so weird to have to film. Yeah, um, but the thing, yeah, because the other thing also is that all the romance in these films has has been very um, PG in some ways, right? It, it's never like the romance is always about like the other person's character, right? It, it's not like it hasn't ever been that sort of overtly like sexual style of romance and then all of a sudden in the scene it's just like okay that's totally different <laughs> but um yeah anyway um sorry Anna Jo keep going oh no no that was it <laughs> <laughs> yeah Jerry Jerry you want to keep going yeah sure um this is my least favorite film in the franchise um I was hoping that I would feel differently on this rewatch and I don't um I find this film really frustrating. I find the fact that it tries to make a big emotional payoff of the fact that Dobby dies um, really frustrating because we haven't seen Dobby since uh, Chamber of Secrets. Um, he, he's a completely nothing character compared to what he is in the books, as I understand it. And uh, the fact that he his death is meant to be some big blow to Harry or anyone else in, in this universe uh, seems really forced. Um and uh, I, I find the, the, the middle passage of the film when um, Harry, uh, Hermione and Ron are, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to um, destroy this locket, I find that really frustrating because, like, it seems to stretch interminably and, uh, and nothing happens. Ron disappears. Um, Harry finally figures out um you know f- finally finds the uh the sort of gryffindor under the frozen lake uh hops in and uh is about to is about to confront a uh, a watery end when oh lo and behold ron turns up again i think i i, I think this is I, I don't say i don't think it's a bad film but i think it, it, it feels as if things are being stretched out into in order to accommodate uh, the, the splitting of this story into two films, and I think it it it, it takes away from the what would otherwise have been um, a more taut way of telling this story. So I've never had a particular great love for instalment for this instalment, even though I can see that it sets us up for all the good things that happen in part two. Uh, which I like, which I like a lot. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I just find things, certain things are stretched out, and other things are dealt with in a really peremptory fashion. For instance, Rufus Scrimgeour, Scrimgeour new new Minister for Magic, he dies uh, in two seconds. <laughs> dies two seconds off screen, yeah. and cast Bill Nye in the role. I mean, yeah. it says something about the prestige of this franchise <laughs> that it could attract someone like Bill Nye to play what is an absolutely nothing character in what is quite obviously an utterly po- pointless cameo. But, you know, they've cast him and he's there and and he's gone. <laughs> um, and then the, 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 way they, the way that, you know, Mad-Eye Booty just 
gets killed again off screen in the most sort of peremptory fashion and there's no weight to it <laughs> like there are absolutely no consequence no consequences to to his death you, the, the the you know the characters show more concern for the fact that is it george or fred mm. is wounded than they do for the fact that this this quite important character has just been killed mm. um and it's which and it's all the weirder given that like Brendan Gleeson's son Donal um, makes his first appearance in this franchise as um, the fiance of um, Fleur Delacourt. So is he Brendan Gleeson's son? Yeah, Donal yeah. Gleeson is. See, it didn't actually make it any weirder at all. Daryl just really wanted to drop that film fact in there. <laughs> yeah, no. I, well, I, I just that was just an interesting film fact because he's the yeah. guy who's in Star Wars as well, right? Yeah, is that? Yeah. He's General Hux in uh, in Star Wars, and uh, yeah, he's Brendan Gleeson's real life son. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so, and it's a wonder that he wasn't actually cast as one of the Weasleys, given his his red hair. <laughs> but, um, uh, and so you're like, oh, you know, I, I just so these things are sort of tossed off in a really dismissive, peremptory fashion, and the really boring stuff, which is um, our our our, you know famous trio wandering around aimlessly that gets dragged out for quite a while um and it ends with you know sort of dobby turning up as ex as deus ex machina uh and then being being killed off as if that's some some big deal when you know as as much as the the uh filmmakers tried to make dobby seem like an endearing character the fact of the matter is they just didn't have an, have enough of him in the in the film franchise, such that when he finally does die, I remember I remember thinking this. Well, when I watched this movie in the cinema, I hadn't seen Chamber of Secrets yet, so I didn't know who Dobby was. So um, that must have been weird. So who did you think this character that just teleported in was? It was just I was like, it's some really ugly bloke who's, who's just <laughs> and 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 everyone knows him. Um, <laughs> You know, this bloke who looks a lot like David Murray, the former CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, uh, has just turned up, and uh, and and then he dies, and they're all really sad, and I don't know why. So that <laughs> that was my response to the ending of this movie. Uh, so look, I, I think the there's so much table setting, uh, and there's so much um, moving pieces around in this movie. Uh, and obviously this is all, you know, bringing us towards the, the earth shattering climax that we're about to get in the next installment. But for my money, this movie could have been at least 20 minutes shorter than it actually is. Um, and, uh, which is not to deny there are some real high points, as everyone has pointed out. The, the little animated film that we get, um, telling the story of, of the Deathly Hallows is, is perhaps the most impressive sequence. Um, in this entire movie, I think it, it's certainly it's certainly the most gripping, the one that shows the most sort of storytelling skill, uh, because it is a sort of haunting little story. Um, and even though um, at this point in the game we actually don't know this is the significance of any of the Deathly Hallows, because um, uh, uh, Luna Love Lovegood's dad hasn't yet told them hasn't told them what the significance of um, these items is for the purposes of their quest to find the, find and destroy the Horcruxes, um, it, it was still 
good to be taken out of the sort of relative dreariness of this story and be given something that that is you know sort of haunting and impactful in a way that for my money a lot of the rest of the movie isn't and i've got to say i actually i actually missed hogwarts um I miss the fact that we didn't have the school story. I miss the fact that you know this was a movie, this this movie um, gave us some of the some of the old crew on the on the Hogwarts Express. But at the same time, you know, not seeing the Great Hall, uh, not seeing um, the uh, Gryffindor common room, not seeing the the moving staircase or the moving portraits, um, made it feel really weird. It just it just this didn't this felt so atypical and. Um, and took away, I think, from some of the charm of, of, of the movie. Because truth be told, there is the, the whole, you know, boarding school element of the of the story is a big part of the charm of the entire series. And you take it away and it's it's the story of, well, you know, these these three depressed adolescents um yeah. Island. Yeah. I get, look, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you've just said there, Jerry. Like, I I also feel that this is a film where, like, for me, when I watch this, like, it's not... The the motivation for the plot is not always there. Like, there's a lot of films where, you know, the plot is, like... And a lot of Harry Potter films, specifically, where there is, like, a really core plot driver. And for this film... As you said, there's a lot of the kids sitting around in the woods, basically shrugging their shoulders, saying, "Well, I don't really know what to do now." And it, it, on one level, is, I kind of understand why they do it, but on another level, from a storytelling perspective, it's kind of like you in the audience are also kind of shrugging your shoulders, going, "Well, so what are we supposed to do now? Like, what's the motivation for this film right now?" Um, yeah, but at the same time, so this is, yeah, I, I agree. This is like a weird film because on one level, I fully understand the choices that they took. And then on another level, it's kind of like, well, in taking those choices, you actually create quite a stodgy film in some ways, right? Like, look, I also, like, up front, I like this film still. I think all of the Harry Potter films are pretty decently made. Um, for me, this is probably... I, I'm with Jerry on this one. This is probably my least favourite one as well, right? And it's probably my least favourite ones for reasons that other people have cited. Like, uh, for one, I really enjoy the Hogwarts elements, and it's a shame that you don't have the Hogwarts elements, even though I fully understand exactly why those Hogwarts elements aren't there. I, I think this is also probably my least favourite, because this is the film where, like, Harry Potter... Look, I have no love for in inverted commas, young adult films, right? Young adult fiction and young adult films, right? I I feel like a lot of them are, like, overly sort of emo. (laughs) And this is probably the closest we get in Harry Potter when it's young adult, right? Because you have the weird sort of love triangle kind of in this, and also just, like, kids sitting around feeling despair, right? And... Like, I think, yeah, as I said, this is probably part of the reason why I don't love it as much as the other ones is because it does have that sort of young young adults, young adult sense of, like, despair that sort of suffuses the film. Now, is that despair necessary? So, 
on one level, like they do 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 it really well, right? Like the sense of of foreboding throughout this film, the sense that things are just fundamentally not right, even when they're sitting outside in the camp by them, like you know, sort of so far removed from the rest of the world things do not feel right right and yeah like you you do have sort of deaths that kind of occur off screen like Mad-Eye Moody and that sort of stuff but I, I feel that for me like those those elements all kind of add to this sense of like the world is like spinning off its hinges right like the center is not holding anymore right like things that things are like not really working anymore um so yeah like I, I feel like in sort of in, if that is kind of one of the core um, directives of this film in, in terms of like this is one of the core missions of this film then I think that this film 100% achieves that because you do absolutely feel that everything is not right right you do absolutely feel that this like pull over everything um but yeah, like at the same time, it is um, yeah, it's just like I I guess the the lack of the overall plot drivers and the plot drivers kind of just appear, right? Like it's kind of like oh, let's try going to Godric's Hollow, let's try like this or that, right? Like it, these things kind of appear, and it's not like sort of driven by sort of some over like it feels like in other Harry Potter films, like the pl- all these elements kind of rush together as in like build together for the plot resolution while here it's kind of like just these elements kind of spring up and then they kind of try them and so as a plot it just does not feel as satisfying and I think that is a function of the fact that they split up the films but again this is one of these things where it's like well if you didn't split up this film would the last film have been as satisfying like I am also in the same camp as Jerry in that like I up front I really enjoyed Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part 2 but you know I I don't know if you could have landed part 2 without like this sort of really sort of weird part 1 I I don't know like I I don't know if you could have done Deathly Hallows in a single film right like there is like quite a lot to get through like could you have done it in like a 5 out 4 hour film or something like that but then who's going to sit around for a 4 hour film so yeah, like it, it's kind of a weird film in the, in the sense that it's kind of like the bit of medicine you have to swallow before you get to the really good bit in the last film. So yeah, it, it's definitely a weird one for me. It, it's not my favorite. And it's probably my, as I said, it's probably my least favorite. But um, yeah, on some level, it feels like medicine that you're taking. Not horrible medicine, but medicine you're taking before, um, before the payoff in the final film. I had a question for the group. Can someone please explain to me why the Sword of Gryffindor is in the lake? And what the whole Patronus thing is? In... I can. And... Okay, <laughs> please explain that. Because for me, it feels like they randomly apparated to some place, and then all of a sudden the Sword of Gryffindor is there. So I don't even need you to finish the question. I know exactly what the answer is. <laughs> no, no, go, please. <laughs> Okay, so obviously they've discovered that they can kill the Horcruxes with the Sword of Gryffindor, but the Sword of Gryffindor is missing, right? It's been taken from the bank. We don't know by who. Um, what actually happens is that Snape, 
who is pretending to be evil, currently the headmaster of Hogwarts, has the sword, and he needs to get it to Harry so that Harry can use it to kill Horcruxes. Snape knows that the sword will, you know, do the job. So he lures Harry towards the lake where he has chucked the sword in. He wants Harry to find it. And he lures him with um, a Patronus in the form of a doe. So the doe was actually um, his mother's Patronus. Um, Hers was a doe in response to Harry's father's stag, right? And when um, Harry's mum died, Snape's Patronus turns into a doe as well, kind of like in honour of or, you know, loving memory of. So that is... It's Snape's Patronus. He's leading Harry towards the lake. As to why he threw it in the lake, um, he throws it in the lake because he's like, fuck that boy. Let him go. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, I have to do this, but yeah, fuck you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You learned that it was Snape. But okay, okay, but what I don't understand is how does Snape. Because for. For Snape to summon the Patronus in that locality, because if you think about it, Harry is teleporting, apparating himself all over the place, all over the UK. It's unclear where he's going, right? Like, he's just jumping left and right, right? How does Snape know he's going to, like, teleport into that location? Good point. That's not explained anyway. And I think, Joel, when you ask the question, you know, like, you know, is this explained? This is a flop flaw with this movie in particular a lot happens that you just wouldn't understand or know or catch it all just blurs like for example um the elder wand right you see flashes of wand makers talking to Voldemort you see Voldemort on on top of um Dumbledore's grave you see um you see a very important scene where you see Harry physically disarm Malfoy which is extremely important because it's that moment when the true command of the Elder Wand passes from Malfoy, who got it by disarming Dumbledore just before Dumbledore was killed. So, you know, it belongs to Malfoy, and then when Harry physically disarms Malfoy, it shifts, true ownership of the wand shifts to Harry, and Voldemort doesn't know. He thinks that Snape is the true owner because Snape killed Dumbledore. He doesn't understand this chain of um, ownership. This is so important. And for the final movie, too, you know, well, maybe not in the movie, but it's important to the plot of the books. And you would never, like, you would never even notice that Harry had disarmed Malfoy or, you know, like, so much just happens and you just get the gist of it. Um, but you wouldn't understand it unless you had book knowledge. But but Harry physically disarms Malfoy. He doesn't do it with, like, an... Ex- doesn't, matter. doesn't matter. It's it's, it's <laughs> dominant. It's dominance. Right? Someone's... Yeah, yeah. You dominate the owner of the wand in, in a, through disarming So if he had punched Malfoy in the face, it would have, like, achieved the same thing. Wand. You have to take his wand. It doesn't have to be the elder wand, but you have to take his wand. That's the law. That's the wand law. I'm not saying it's a great uh, it's a great plot to begin with. It was a great, um, you know, piece of law to begin with. But... Or a great bit of storytelling to begin with. That's how she made it. But that... Look, that is nevertheless what she's written and you would not be able to understand any of that by just watching this film but yeah. it is important yeah because I, I that's a very good point because 
like having watched the last film, you know that this scene is important. So rewatching this film this time, I made a special specific point to watch very carefully when Harry was in Malfoy's house to really catch the moment when Harry um, gains the Elder Wand, right? And I was actually really surprised. I thought that my original recollection was Harry did some, you know, whatever the spell they used to disarm people. Expelliarmus, right? To disarm the wand. I thought he disarmed him through Expelliarmus, but he doesn't. He physically goes up and takes it off him. I think in the books he might have used Expelliarmus. I've got a feeling, but yeah. yeah. Right. It feels kind of inelegant that he wins it by basically physically bullying him, right? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, ag- agreed. There's definitely like bits of law that um, are not fully explained. And I think... It's not unimportant. Like, that's the reason Voldemort kills Snape in the next movie, right? Wouldn't you be sitting there going, why has he killed Snape? Right? Yeah. Like, if you didn't know. So... Yeah. And, and this is actually, if you think about it, the moment when Harry physically takes a wand away from <laughs> Malfoy <laughs> is when he actually gains control of the Deathly Hallows, right? Like, at that point, he doesn't know it, but he actually has control of all three Deathly Hallows. Yeah. He's technically won the game at that point in time. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the stone is in the snitch, right? Like, it is, right? I think so. I can't, I can't yeah, I, I think the snitch that. opens and the stone comes out. Yeah. And then he's got the invisibility cloak just hanging around. And so that moment when he physically bullies uh, Malfoy is when he wins. It feels a bit weird that that is... (laughs) Can I say, things like Deathly Hallows and another point about that story and how good it is. You know, Mags did a great job of outlining how the themes of the book kind of match onto that story. But I guess another one that strikes me is this idea that you can't cheat death. Um, because that's what Voldemort is trying to do, right, through the Horcruxes. But then, ironically, he thinks he can use the Hallows, you know, similarly, I think, to to, to, to live forever in, you know, eternal power. And it's, it's ironic because the whole moral of the Deathly Hallows story and how those Hallows came to be should tell you the opposite, that you actually can't cheat death. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Gerald was saying the other day that Google is working on immortality for humans and this kind of depresses me because one thing I love about death is it's the great equaliser, you know? So, <laughs> um, yeah, I like also that, that theme of, yeah. you know, at the end, yeah. death is for all of us and no one is so great or so powerful or so rich that they can evade it. Yeah. And, look, the other thing is that... <laughs> the last brother does... He's the exception to the rule. He he's the one who's, who who greets death as an equal. As an equal, uh, which I really enjoy, right? It's because respected death because he respected death. Yeah, yeah. He accepts that it is a part, right? Because at the end, he actively goes and seeks out death, right? As in, like he, he approaches death. So it's kind of like he's not seeking to cheat death. He's merely seeking to meet death on his own terms, which yeah. He was given that boon because he respected death by acknowledging the power of death, you know, by not asking for something that would give him power, but simply that would let him pass by unseen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is like, I I think it is telling that, like, I mean, from a storytelling perspective, that Voldemort in many ways does not care about any of the other Deathly Hallows beyond the Elder Wand, right? Like, if you think about Voldemort's 
only aim right now is to get that wand because he sees it purely as a contest of strength, right? Mm. The, the whole thing with Harry, it's got nothing to do with anything else, but if I get the bigger gun, then I will win, right? It's like seen in this sort of very, like, stark, um, almost base, like, sort of base, you know, like, animalistic sort of approach, which is that if I'm physically stronger than you, then I will win, and that's it, right? Um, mm. Like, he reduces it down to that, which is exactly why it's weird for me <laughs> that Harry technically gains control of the Deathly Hallows by overpowering a man physically. <laughs> um, yeah. I also observed that, like, um, as you pointed out, that, you know, the Ministry um, has installed in a, a new statue which depicts basically the oppression of the Muggles by um, witches and wizards. Uh, and the theme of bigotry towards muggles and mudbloods is something that's hinted at throughout these movies, but it's never fully fleshed out. And I'm not entirely sure that it's presented necessarily as a, as an explanation for why Voldemort does what he does. I mean, part of it, it, it must be part of it because he hates his human father. Um, but it's not a, it, it, it's never really fleshed out in the films. I'm not sure whether it's fleshed out at all um, in, in the books. And so there is a bit of a there is a bit of a gaping hole in terms of Voldemort's uh, motivations, which you kind of have to fill in the blanks for. Um, but there's no real sort of guidance given for it. It's not as if he, he's not... I mean, we know we know that he doesn't think at all highly of humankind, and in the opening scene of the film when the, um, when the Death Eaters um, meet, uh, they, the, he kills and tortures that one teacher at Hogwarts because she believes that um, muggles and witches and wizards can live together in harmony. But he's not he's not like magneto for instance he's not he has he hasn't been um on the receiving end of this great trauma at the hands of muggles which prompts him to to hate muggles the way that magneto hates non-mutants such that um it's always seemed to me that one of the weaknesses of the franchise one of the very few weaknesses of the franchise is that even as good and as powerful as Ray Fine's performance as Voldemort is, he's still something of a cipher. Yeah, look, I mean, look, I, I get what you're saying. I, I think the way Voldemort is portrayed, he's such a megalomaniac that it's it's kind of like, yeah, you're right. They don't really go into the full backstory of Voldemort to fully flesh out his motivations and all that, but. At the same time, his character is consistent enough that, you know, from what you see of him and the way he, like, he acts, you could see it's not that far of a, like, it's not that far of a bridge, right? Like, as in, you could understand how he could be this guy who kind of just wants to dominate over all, all beings, whether they're magical or 
non-magical, right? So, like, in the sense that it, it, like, it taps into his megalomania, like, I could still see that, like, yeah, it's not fully explained, but I, it's, it's, his character is consistent enough that I'm willing to accept it, right? So, to, to me, like, the explanation for it is he does feel inferior, right? And a lot of that has to do with being half-blooded, um, and some of that has to do with being half-blooded. I'd say more of it has to do with being rejected, you know? Like, he's an orphan. Um, He's also really evil from the beginning, but he feels inferior, and he copes with that. Like, his defense mechanism is to feel superior, right? So he does everything he can to be superior, and he believes, he convinces himself that he is superior. If you're going to be superior, then someone has to be inferior, you know, and it makes sense in this world for those someones to be the muggles, right? Not because they are, not because there's a reason, just that he needs to be superior, which means someone has to be inferior, right? So I think I think it's that. Um, I think it's that self-hatred towards the part of himself that he thought was weak, um, you know, to cope with a time when he did feel alone and discarded and weak. I just I think that's all it is. I don't think it's any like think of Hitler like, you know. The, yeah, yeah. I I, I I would also. Sorry, sorry, Anna-Jo. It's not like there's ever a justification for treating. Not that you're saying there should be a justification. You're just saying there should be an explanation. To me, it makes more sense that you arbitrarily classify people as inferior than that there is some actual good reasoning behind it. I think it's more about you needing to be superior than anything else. And you do pick a group to outgroup, right? In-group, outgroup is one of the most powerful dynamics of humankind, right? We, For us to feel good about ourselves we need to be part of the in-group which means that someone is on the outs yeah and i think also like if you think about voldemort's behavior right like he is someone like what do we know about him he's a bully right and we know that he believes that might makes right right and it's reinforcing this film because like i mean not explicitly but like you know it's implied that Voldemort only cares about the elder one because he believes that might makes right like if your ability to dominate over someone is the most important aspect of one's existence essentially right so um in that sense it would kind of make sense that he in particular would question this world where there's this weird like accord with humans who have no power right like compared to wizards these humans are like you know they can't sort of like just kill people with a word right the humans have no sort of magical power whatsoever so in if your philosophy in life is might makes right why wouldn't you dominate these people it actually makes no logical sense that we wouldn't like we in inverted commas as like wizards and witches wouldn't dominate these people who have no power it it makes no sense so yeah like while i agree that it's not he's he isn't a magneto in that like they don't really flesh out the underlying like what's his backstory to explicitly tell that uh to explicitly explain why it is i feel like as adager has said there's enough sort of character pieces that fall into place that make it believable and consistent enough right that um i i don't personally need that explicit backstory yeah um it was so much more believable to me that it that there was no backstory that there was no explanation because that's so much more like this world you know where 
you, you create an in-group, you're the ones that belong, you're the ones in power, and then there are people on the outside, whether it's because of their skin color or whatever it is, you know, it's just so human and it's so deeply uncomfortable and upsetting. Mm. That mm. makes more sense to me. Yeah, the problem is though that the, the in-group, out-group out -group dynamic isn't particularly developed in, in the films either. Like, as I said before, the, the bigotry towards uh, mudbloods and muggles is something that's hinted at. and most explicitly when Draco Malfoy calls Hermione a mudblood. Um, but it, it, it's still something that is only dropped from time to time. So you actually never get a real sense of how wizards as a whole view muggles. You never get a sense of how, of whether there's a deep antipathy towards muggles in significant sections of the wizarding world. Um, and, and so... There the, the still seems to be, I think, a bit of an absence. I, I look, I accept completely the the logic of um, everything that Anna just said and that you said, Darren. But for my money, because there is still a bit of a gap, there is still something to be desired in the presentation of um, Voldemort's motivation. Simply because, look, if it really is something like like as banal as feeling inferior and being slightly bigoted as a, in order to exploit um, people's resentments and surround yourself with uh, a body of individuals who can then identify as an in-group compared to an out-group. Look, that, that, that sort of banality of motivation might actually make Voldemort in a way scarier because um, that is such a that is such an everyday sort of evil yeah uh, that, is, that is precisely the sort of evil you encounter uh, in real life exactly. as distinct from the Bond villain evil of wanting to take over the world exactly that's it's why it's that, better it's just that too often because because aspects of this part of Voldemort are undeveloped because aspects of this part of the world are undeveloped, does uh, shape towards um, Bond villain sometimes. Mm. I think and this raises that, though. I think this raises a really interesting point. That what would you change about these last two films to make them better? Mm. What, what would you have wanted to see? You just want it to be about 30 minutes shorter, right? I would have preferred seeing this movie be shorter, but I actually think the problem is not with these two films. I think the problem is with the the preceding chapters. I think the problem is that in the earlier in the earlier films, because they're so quite understandably focused on Harry, his school friends, life. and the school experience, you don't understand the you don't actually get enough of a sense of the world outside Hogwarts. So you don't get much of a sense of how much wizards feel threatened by or, or are antagonistic towards muggles, you don't get the sense that there's any conflict because muggles just don't know that wizards exist. So it's not as if, it's not like the X-Men world where humans and uh, non-mutants and mutants have long been at each other's throats. It's just that, like, muggles just don't know that there's this other world um, uh, that, that, that exists in parallel with their own world. So you never get, you never get the sense that there is conflict between an in-group and an out-group or one group and another, such that when occasionally um, the 
the exploitation of bigotry and resentment by Voldemort becomes a point in the plot, it doesn't land with much weight. And so for me, to the extent that by the time you get to the final chapter, which this kind of is, there is a gap in the motivations of the villains. It, it's not something that can be made up for, I think, in these films, simply because there's there's so much going on. Um, but um, it's you don't get it in the first few chapters because it is minor. There isn't a big conflict in this world between muggles and wizards. Yeah. It is a it is always it is a minor irritation. The wizards kind of feel a little bit superior, but it's it is minor. There is this whole mudblood terminology that you know some of the extremists kind of but it's it's on the fringe it's not it's not a real thing it's Voldemort who stirs it up which is so to me if it was always a big thing you couldn't then say this was something that was just a minor irritation and Voldemort uses this minor irritation to sort of um empower his movement you know to give them an ideology to give them something to stand behind him except that you can't create these things in a vacuum right like if there is if there is an antipathy towards muggles that that is capable of being exploited so that this one magician this one wizard can become the most powerful you know dark wizard in all history there's got to be something there first and it's got to be something more than irritation you know deep-seated anti-semitism pre-existed hitler hitler exploited it the deep-seated, uh, you know, sort of conflict between Shiites and Sunnis existed before Saddam Hussein rose to power in, in Iraq and exploited that. So you, you do you, there there is something absent by way of Fair explanation of who yeah. Voldemort is and well, what well, I don't know either. I feel like we're asking a lot because on the one hand we're saying you know these last two films we, we missed. Yeah, we, we, we miss we miss being in Hogwarts, um, but but we also want them to explain the world in more detail. We you know Dobby dies, but the trade off was they knew that a lot of the um, audience who was watching this film now would have read the last book and followed the journey of Dobby. So in some ways, I kind of feel the death of Dobby was actually fan service. But if you were the only, if you had only watched the film, completely understandable that you wouldn't have followed that journey. But that, so there's lots of trade-offs that they've had to make because they've also had to, you know, cater to an audience who large for, you know, by this time, I think largely would have also read the books. And let's not forget the huge Harry Potter um, fan base that still exists and definitely existed at that time. So I kind of feel like, we're asking a lot. So there's a bit of the trade-off that we, as an audience, have to also acknowledge. And also, I think, to be fair to the, to the makers of the, of the movies, the, the, these decisions and the trade-offs were made at a time when they didn't know the ending. So they, 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 there were things that had to be emphasised without knowing how yeah. certain aspects of the story would, be, would pan out. So they had to they emphasised the, the story of the school over the story of, you know, the broader society of wizards and how it interacted with the muggle world simply because, um, you know, that that was what the initial books were about. But they also had they also didn't have much of an inkling of how the story necessarily might end in terms of the significance for, you know, Voldemort's plans of being able to exploit the antipathy of certain sections of the wizarding community uh, towards the muggle world. So... You know, they they were operating without the benefit of knowing 
how the story would end and therefore what what necessarily always to emphasize at any given time in any installment in the series mm. so I'm not, I can't begrudge I can't begrudge them the the creative decisions that they that they that they made along the way simply because they they were operating kind of in real time uh, and uh, didn't weren't privy to uh, all of JK, JK Rowling's plans to the yeah. extent that she, she had everything plotted out in her mind beforehand anyway which you know yeah. she didn't well, look, to her credit, I feel like even if the details of the Deathly Hallows and the details of the Horcruxes were not planned out immediately from the beginning, like, I definitely feel... Look, I mean, if we take a step back, I feel like the, 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 the sweep of these Harry Potter stories, like, I mean, I, I feel like the overall direction, it feels like there is a single captain at the helm, Right? It doesn't feel like something like Game of Thrones. Like, this is not like a Game of Thrones situation where it's like season, like, six or seven, it feels like someone completely different has just taken over the helm and, like, the story is just going in a completely way weird direction, right? Um, like, yeah, like, I, I think Rowling potentially didn't have every story beat fully planned out, but I think the general direction was probably there right like i think about the horcrux story for example right like i feel because like i remember reading i remember reading philosopher's stone and thinking to myself harry is definitely connected to voldemort in some way and he's it's definitely some sort of two souls in one body thing i I specifically remembered like thinking something like that right and I think it was heavily implied that there was some sort of story element around that in Philosopher's Stone as well. So I think the concept of, like, Horcruxes and splitting your soul and, like, these sorts of, like, um, sort of, like, uh, sort of forces that are pitted against, like, forces that are pitted against each other, that sort of thing, that is definitely established. But whether, like, she had specifically like, decided I'm going to have seven Horcruxes and they're going to be X, Y, and Z, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I don't think that was figured out, right? And, look, the reality, actually, is that if she had fewer Horcruxes, this story would be much tighter, right? You probably could have Deathly Hallows part just a single a single Deathly Hallows film if she had just said that Voldemort split his soul into five pieces instead of seven because you could have like bypassed the entire locket scenario and just gone straight to the bit when they go to Hogwarts to try to find the remaining two Horcruxes right but like anyway it's it's kind of by the by I, like overall like I still feel like these films are yeah I, I while I think this is the weakest film and while I actually do agree with Jerry to some extent in that, like, um, I, I I think one of the weaknesses... Well, is it a weakness? But it's one of the things that I always think about when I watch these films and it is, like, how does a wizarding world and the muggle world actually interact, right? Like, because you have these weird scenes where, like, um, Ron's dad seems fascinate, fascinated by any piece of machinery but then you think to yourselves to yourself well then how would they know how to use a payphone then right like you know so there is like like if you think really hard about this 
like that interaction between the muggle world and the wizarding world is probably not doesn't really make 100% sense but for the purposes of this story like everything fits in place enough that I'm willing to suspend my disbelief and kind of like just go with it right so yeah like overall I, I, like even though I think this is probably my least film my least favorite film it, like the overall sweep of the story is still kind of in the right direction yeah agree yeah um, yeah the last thing I kind of want to add is that like the one thing look I get why Jerry doesn't really feel the emotional hit of the Dobby situation but I have to say I did feel the emotional hit of the Dobby situation I don't know if it's because I have previously read the books or I'm just like sentimental right because does feel bad for me when Dobby dies because he is he's like especially in this in this film he's portrayed as like so earnest and like just selflessly helpful right um and then just kind of like the the casual way in which he in which Bellatrix Lestrange kills him is like quite um disturbing right and um yeah, I, I definitely felt... I, I Look, I mean, I, I definitely felt some sort of emotional reaction to that. I know that he's not, like, a major, major... It wouldn't be the same... It's not the same as, say, someone like Ron dying or, like, um, Hermione dying, right? But I, I, I definitely felt, um, like, something, right? It was... It was um, yeah, I definitely felt something from that scene. I, I don't know, like, and people part apart of from Jerry. Part of the problem, does is that... The last two films we had seen deaths of escalating importance. So, yeah. Sirius Black dying, then Dumbledore dying. And you're like, well, if those two died in the previous installment, then someone really important, really important he could die really in this one. He is really important in the books. And Less like, so yeah. And, it's, and basically, you know, sort of... But, but I think... <laughs> I think for me, like, Dobby dying is important because he is kind of like collateral damage in some ways like Dumbledore dying Dumbledore is part of the fight right him being killed by Severus is like all part of the plan right and he's part of this sort of fight between Voldemort and the Death Eaters he's not collateral damage he's like a frontline soldier right so yes his death is significant but it's like and even Sirius right Sirius his death is significant but he's a frontline soldier with Dobby it's kind of like he's just someone who's trying to help right he's not really a frontline soldier in this whole scenario and like for me that that's why there's that emotional impact there right like he's someone who's incredibly earnest who um is not like directly involved in this fight with Voldemort but because he has such um because Harry freed him basically in the past and he wants to help he like ends up as this horrible collateral damage can I say the half-elf thing to me is more uncomfortable than anything else. You know, they deal with this more in the books, but obviously we're talking about, you know, the evilness of Voldemort wanting to make slaves or wanting to oppress muggles, you know, with the, the, the imagery of that um, the statue in the ministry. But, you know, obviously very uncomfortably, wizards have house-elves. Like, Harry himself has a house-elf. And a house elf is an incredibly powerful magical being that is being held to servitude against their will. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Harry 
Um, you know, it's just it's very uncomfortable. Hogwarts has gazillions in the books. You know, it is very. You know, Hermione goes on a, on a, on a cruise to sort of free them, and that's fine. At least they deal with that aspect. But they don't deal with that in the movies, right? So you can't you can't say well the book deals with it. The movies don't deal with it at all. And given that it's making such a point of you know the evilness of Voldemort for um, you know fighting for Muggle slavery. It's weird. And the other weird thing, again, it's not so weird in the books because they really developed a relationship between Harry and Dobby, and I can see why Dobby would want to sacrifice himself for Harry. But in the in the in the movies, because Harry is actually quite mean towards Dobby and you don't see that much of their relationship, Dobby being so giving towards Harry feels like it's because Harry freed him. But he shouldn't have been enslaved anyway and so if you shouldn't have been enslaved anyway i don't think you should have to feel this unending gratitude life debt towards the person who frees you so i find the whole thing really uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) more uncomfortable than any emotions i may have over dobby's death (laughs) Mm, mm. Mm. no i still maintain i think it was fan service yeah 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 i I, yeah they had to he had to die, right? Like it's it's one of the major beats in the film, in the books. So you have to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I agree, Anna. The whole house elf thing. It, it kind of reminds me. Like I, I've always had this sort of because you know I'm a Star Wars fan, and like every time I watch Star Wars and the way they treat droids, and it's almost like droids are like supposed to be sentient beings, but. <laughs> like they treat them like property, right? It's like, hang on, something's, something's not quite right here, right? Like, why do you treat some droids like this and other droids differently? Anyway, it's um, it's uh, yeah. I guess there are some things that you kind of just have to accept for these films. Okay, um, is there anything else we really want to discuss um in terms of Deathly Hallows Part One? No, I'm kind of sad we're towards the end. This has been consistent, reliable. <laughs> I know. <laughs> now, now we're going to have to take a risk and watch films, new films, that are invariably crap, it seems. So. <laughs> anyway, we have one last one left. We have one last film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. A film that Gerald has preempted is pretty good, and I agree. So I'm really looking forward to watching that. And... um yeah, it kind of coincides with the end of lockdown in Australia. So, you know, we'll be free to watch other films going forward. But I'm definitely pumped to um, finish our rewatching of Harry Potter. Um, so thanks so much for everyone tonight for joining me. And um, we'll be back soon with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Say goodnight, everyone. Good night. Ciao.